0: Hi, I'm Don Mackie, and welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Welcome. This is Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems and another edition of Pathways to Rural Prosperity. Tonight, we're talking about diversity and entrepreneurship, and our guest is our friend and mentor, colleague Del Gines, uh, with the Kansas City Federal Reserve. And we're going to focus on the role of diversity in entrepreneurship and we're also going to have Dell talk a little bit about the paper that he and Rodney Sampson published a while ago, but there's other resources that I know Dell has done. So, Dell, welcome to this edition of our podcast.
1: Yes, I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, terrific. Terrific. Well, I always like to start, Dell, while I'm sure you're universally known, there may be some out there who don't know your backstory, but I think it'd be interesting to kind of Tell us how you got interested in this kind of work and particularly focused on entrepreneurship through your work with the Fed. So share a little bit about your backstory.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, and I came up in our Black community here in Omaha called North Omaha. And for a while before the demographics changed and we started seeing a large Latino population in some of our smaller towns in Nebraska, it was historically had been the only minority, majority zip code in the nation. I think at, at a certain point, like 60 to 70% of all black people in Nebraska lived in like this zip code and the two zip codes, you know, adjacent to it. So it was a very clustered, you know, effect. And so, you know, I came up in that and also had the designation of being the poorest, if not one of the poorest, if not the poorest zip codes in the area. So when I, I came up, you know, you don't think of that stuff as a kid, you know, you're just living working and playing, you know, as a kid, but you know, when I got older, I started doing, you know, community work pretty early on, like my senior year of high school. Started having a social conscious. and then serendipitously, I kind of fell into banking as the early part of my career. You know, somebody told me I could make, you know, thirty five thousand dollars a year a long time ago as an in store banker at U.S. Bank, and I was like, sign me up because I I don't know maybe you have done, but I've never heard anybody when they were kid ask, what do you want to be when you grow up, and they get they say a banker, and that really started focusing in my work because I started seeing firsthand, like I was working back then at Commercial Federal Bank, which is now Bank of the West. And one month I took 30 loan applications only got one of those loans approved. And this is all in my community. And so I went from in-store banker, to personal banker to small business banker. And I ended my banking career at Wells Fargo Bank as a business banker. And all of it was in, you know, my community, the black community here in Omaha. So I was seeing firsthand kind of like these challenges. And then as I was looking out in the community. I saw the depression in my community and started putting the two and two together and said, you know, a lot of these things are rooted in, you know, the ability to develop and control your economic space. And, and the primary way I felt was doing that was through entrepreneurship. So I, for a while, I ran a microloan program and incubator called the Omaha Small Business Network, bounced around a little bit to Habitat for Humanity. And prior to the Fed, I kind of was executive director of this small workforce, medical healthcare workforce nonprofit designed to get more kids, diverse kids from urban environments into the healthcare career. But my passion was always small business and entrepreneurship because a few things just a little to fill out the backstory. So, you know, I had designed and taught the first social entrepreneurship class at Creighton University, routinely taught business plan classes in the community, even developed some through various things, consulted through the, whether it's the banking or as a professor or other things with a lot of small businesses. So, I really felt I had my finger of the post on what we call your traditional businesses, you know, usually micro, 10 employees or less. Really good at that. Not really the tech or high growth stuff. That was really unknown to me and a lot of the peers that were in the space at the time. And so when the opportunity to come to join the Federal Reserve Bank came, I jumped on it because it was a very unique opportunity from the standpoint of they were looking for a community development advisor who, you know, had a wide variety of community development background. You know, obviously I had that but they wanted that person to focus on small business. And so the small business focus was new for us. We hadn't had any focus. And in fact, my boss had just created a a new way for our team to approach community development. And it was a technical specialty, which we have for the entire region. And so for those listening, that's the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. So we cover Nebraska, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Wyoming, part of New Mexico and part of Missouri. And so you have that regional focus of small business, but then you also have a geographic focus, which mine was Nebraska. And so I was responsible for helping my peers in the other areas like workforce, small business, bring programs into Nebraska while they helped me, you know, develop programs in the other parts of the city or the region. And so that is kind of my shortened version. And along the way, of course, you know, you get your education. So I ended up getting my bachelor's degree from Grace University, which is a small Bible college. So everybody that came out of there had a kind of a dual majors. Mine was business management and Bible. And I still to this day don't know if, if God finds those two contradictory, but it was interesting. And I fell into that too. I mean, just serendipitously because I was playing college basketball, but I also had was married at the time when we had, had our first daughter. So I needed to work. So I ended up switching because originally, and I don't even know if you know this, Don, I started as a pastoral major. Because I had started, my educational background was I was one of the top 10% African-American students in the nation. So I could go anywhere in the nation. I ended up choosing to go to University of Nebraska-Lincoln on an engineering scholarship because they were giving me more money back. Then I ended up flunking out there. So I finished with a 0.25 GPA my freshman year. The only class that I passed was this mythology class, which I still don't know how because I never went to class. So so then I had to take a semester off, which is where I ended up meeting my wife during when I met my wife. So it was all in God's plans. And then I ended up going back for a semester there to take the classes that I failed so I can get back to financial aid. Then I ended up going to Creighton University where I was a speech and communications major. It just didn't really fit with me, but I found a home in Grace so I could play college basketball there. And that helped me, you know, kind of get through school. Because I couldn't go full-time anymore, the traditional full-time, they had these accelerated programs where you only took classes at night, and they only had two tracks. One was business and one was counseling. So I said, let's go business. So everything, if, if you listen to kind of the story, nothing really was planned. It all kind of, the only thing that was intentional on my part was my desire to help the community out, right? But as I learned, and these things kind of fell in my my lap, and I could look at and say, okay, this is how I want to do it. And then things started following. So then I got my first master's degree at the University of Nebraska Omaha. And then I said, you know, I want to, I want to get a PhD. I just want to finish this thing out. So I had to take 18 credit hours of undergraduate master's of public administration program just to get into the PhD program in public administration. But I was very fortunate because two of your friends were strong advocates for me, Dr. B.J. Reed and Dr. Chris Reed who have an extensive community development background and, and a lot in the space that you know I wanted to be in. And so I finally got in there, I got everything rolling, had about one class left. And that's about when I started working at the Fed. And I had to tell them I said, I don't know if I'm gonna have to travel. I don't know what my schedule is going to be. The program was still a traditional program. So they wanted people to be there. So you really couldn't miss a lot of classes and it wasn't virtual. So I had to take a break. In the middle of that, I got my second master's degree in finance from Bellevue University. And when I finished that I'm like, you know, I got to finish this PhD. I kind of knew what my schedule was at work and could kind of control it a little better. So they ended up getting me back in. I ended up finishing that up in December after a very long period of time. And my dissertation is actually in relationship formation in Network Kansas E communities, where you're at now, focusing on the relationship side of entrepreneurship ecosystem building. And during that same period, I just was putting out a lot of content, you know, in the economic development space, specifically entrepreneurship, because when I started at the Fed, my boss, again, remember, I said it was new She was first design. And she said, Del, you tell me what you want to do. Just make an argument for what you want to do. And I said, Tammy, if we look at the intersection between entrepreneurship and economic development, we we'll would be thought leaders five years in five years. And then five years later from that moment, which was 2011, me, you, Penny, Edward Lowe Foundation you US source SourceLink, Steve Bradley Network, Kansas, we hosted the first national ecosystem building conference called Growing Entrepreneurial Communities. So it all, everything ended up working out. Like it started, everything was felt fall into place for me to kind of do what I need to do. And early on, like the first five years, it was really rural was the early, they were the early adopters of this work. And so I would go out to rural communities, like small rural communities, 500 people. Rotary clubs, small economic development boards, you know, just traveling. Sometimes I'd be the only diverse person in a five-county radius, you know. But people would hear me talk about it because I published the Grow Your Own guide, which was my first ecosystem building primer, about 13 pages. And then people would hear because the rural communities, like in a lot of them were smaller rural communities, there was no noise for them. They were looking dead on at economic, you know, distress and ultimate failure if they didn't do something different so when i came along a lot of things to your work with the book that you wrote and others and, and starting to create a framework for this along with the other stuff that i was researching and looking at and thinking about it in my community i was able to put this stuff together and go out and offer them value and kind of point them in a different direction from kind of that traditional economic development which is really failing them and so that just kind of snowballed upon itself and now i'm speaking All over the nation. I think just, I think the last time I looked at spoken in like 26 states, 40 to 50 cities, national, international conferences, all of that on this ecosystem building work that we've been working on for so long. And then something happened. I think it was, I want to say 2017. I was actually speaking at the US SourceLink conference. Actually, I I was the first person, and I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure I'm not the first person to ever use it. I'm the first person I ever heard use it though. I started talking about inclusivity and ecosystem building with the focus on prioritizing inclusive networks at the SourceLink Conference. And what happened during that week, if your listeners remember, Freddie Gray had got killed in Baltimore and the riots were occurring. And so the week of that conference, actually two of the mayors of Baltimore's community development staff were there. And so I spent an hour talking to them about inclusive entrepreneurship ecosystem building and why I felt riots occur in these communities historically and how like the economic foundation needs to be shored up where people actually own and control their local space, which often doesn't happen in a lot of these urban communities like the one that I live in. And so my thesis was that it was very easy, if you don't have control of your space, that it looks like it's somebody else's. And so when these things where people want to go out and protest, and then it escalates, it's a lot easier, in my opinion, to go out and have a riot that is kind of destructive because everything is externalized. All ownership is externalized, psychologically speaking. And so then I immediately went back and I told my then boss, I said, we have to focus on more on urban because I never went out, not one time have I ever asked anybody to have me come speak for them. It's always been organic and the organic pathway was with rural. And I was like, that's fine. I don't, I like small rural towns. I like the orderliness. I like the ability for, them that if they take it really seriously, that they can transform relatively fast, in my opinion. I like the fact that, like I said before, there's very little noise, so that if they want to do something, yeah, you have kind of like the local small community politics and kind of the localized competitiveness with their neighbors, things like that. You know, I get it, but if they really want to do it, they can do it relatively fast, which often takes a little bit longer in urban environments. So I was fine with that. I mean, I, I was perfectly okay doing it in rural communities. But then, you know, based upon my background and actually what I had always wanted to do and why I got to the Fed and focused on ecosystem building in the first place was to do it in communities like mine. That's when kind of the, what we're going to talk about today after that long entry, the inclusive work, you know, begin.
0: Yeah, no, thank you, Dell. Because I think it's important for our listeners. We've all had a journey that's gotten us to this same kind of point that entrepreneurship is important. And of course, today, diversity is important. I know with the work you and I've done together, you know, we use the concept of pathways to prosperity, both for individuals, but also for communities. And also this idea that a lot of our entrepreneurial talent is really rooted in the diversity in our communities, if we're willing to create a level playing field and actually find ways for that talent to succeed. And that intersects with your work. And so, talk a little bit, drawing on your paper, Building Entrepreneurship Ecosystems and Communities of Color, why diversity and inclusion is so important as a consideration when people are building entrepreneurial ecosystems. What are some of the considerations? Because you've had a chance to really bring some great research and perspectives to
1: the table. So, it's useful to break it down into two buckets. Kind of there's the what I would call the economic rationale, and then there's the ethical rationale, you know, for it. And a lot of times when we talk about things like diversity and equity, a lot of it is rooted in the ethical rationale, you know, coming out of the civil rights movement, the desire for America to live up to its ideals, all of those things. And sometimes that's a hard sell, especially in a political environment that can be charged sometimes around these issues, where some of the narrative on either side of the equation so obfuscates like the rationale behind the arguments that it's hard to, you know, really make a clear argument that way without, you know, running into just intentional obstinance, (laughs) for lack of a better word. But I think if we look at the economic side, I think that's something that is much more apolitical. If you will, because it's very hard for anybody, regardless of what you feel about issues of diversity and equity, to say that they don't believe that Americans should have a fair shot at entrepreneurship. The nation was founded as an entrepreneurial nation. I mean, if you go back and look at how we founded, it, it was purely a collective work of entrepreneurship by the individuals that founded the country. You know, we talk, what do we talk about in entrepreneurship? The perception of a problem, perception of an opportunity, and a novel and creative solution that can our traction. Well, that's America, right? You know, so we are in our DNA is entrepreneurial and the fortunes of this country by and large have been built on the backs of entrepreneurs of all ethnicities. And so when we fast forward that to this concept of economic rationale, and by the way, while we're going to talk about entrepreneurship in ecosystems and communities of color, when you look at a lot of my work, that I've written, like the long article I wrote for Main Street and others, you usually hear me frame it from a demographic and a geographic inclusion. And that, a lot of it, extends from my work in rural communities, because I could walk into a community and talk to them and see firsthand the fact that they've been left out of this economic growth that we call in America, almost equally as a lot of our urban communities and diverse entrepreneurs have. So I try to really approach it from a dual lens and say when I talk about inclusion and inclusive ecosystems, I'm not just talking about race and ethnicity, although it's something I care about a lot. I'm also talking about these small rural communities who have really been left to die on the vine by current economic development policy and the lack of support often at the statewide and the local municipal level for what they have and valuing what they have. And I just want the audience to understand that. So now when we talk specific about the diversity and inclusion side, kind of the economic argument that I make, and I think people tend to understand, is I say, okay, if I have a Latina female entrepreneur and I have a white male entrepreneur and she has double the talent, but yet gets half the resources than the white male entrepreneur, they will probably produce the same output, but the community as a whole has a loss. Is that a loss? Because if she has more natural entrepreneurial talent, and the reason that she's not getting access to resources is because of her gender and her ethnicity, then you actually create a less productive economic environment because she should be producing double what the other individual has. But because he gets priority access to resources, then he's going to produce an inferior amount of entrepreneurial output than the Latina entrepreneur. And there, there's research on that. Like one of my favorite books is Gary Becker's, the name of the book escapes me, but it was from 1957. And he eventually went and won the Nobel prize in economics. But what he showed was that in the labor market, there was what was called a taste for discrimination. And in it, what he showed was that at the time whites were willing to either pay less to hire black talent that was equal or superior to white talent or pay more to the white talent for the same productivity versus hiring a black talent. So basically race was the, the factor that was allowing them to place a premium or to reducing the amount of wages they were gonna pay. to so pay at a premium, the white employee, but reduce the wages of the black employee, which had consequences because now the employer is paying more money for the same output of work. And the same thing is happening in our entrepreneurial spaces when they're non-diverse. Because now we're saying, okay, let's use Black women as an example, because I wrote a report on Black women startups. So, Black women started a million businesses. And when you compare for population growth from 2002 to 2012, it far exceeds any other race or ethnic group, male or female. And I would almost, I, and although I haven't looked at it, so this is just speculation on my part, I would almost venture to guess it was the fastest growth of any group in the history of the United States but yet these businesses are overwhelmingly small. They're clustered in like three to four industry clusters and their average net sales is half of that of the next peer competitor, which I think is Native American women. And so I look at that and I say, okay, what's happening within the ecosystem that we're not seeing a diversification of entrepreneurship type. We're not seeing a scalability of firms in their growth. And what are the consequences to local economies because of that? Because clearly there's a lot of energy there there's a lot of desire to start, but there's something going on in the ecosystem that doesn't allow them to be productive to the same degree as other groups. That has an economic consequence. Then the last point that I make on this is that when I first started talking about this and I started talking about it from a variety of dimensions is when I keynoted the Economic Gardening Conference a couple, it had to be six or seven years ago. And In and then I talked about a couple of things in particular. First, I talked about the shifting demographics with our Latino population in the United States. And what I said is, I said, okay, because I like to break it down for people to look at it rationally. And I said, if the Latino population is increasing by, I think it was almost 17 to 20% over the next 20 to 30 years, and the white population is a percentage of the population in the United States is declining, but the white entrepreneurs and white business owners generate three times the revenue and three times the employees, then the group that's going to be replacing them as a percentage of population, what do you think happens to the United States economy? right? There's a, just a clear, logical potential for economic depression or decline. Or what I would almost argue is worse, and again, these are my opinions, is we cede more power to corporations to offset that loss. And we see what's happening with the wealth gap between not just people of color, but all people in the United States between the haves and the have-nots. It would only be exacerbated by empowering corporations more to solve for the challenges of not having the entrepreneurial productivity of our Latina population. I also talked about our age population, our aging population, and the loss of economic value because we don't look at them as potential entrepreneurs. The work of Elizabeth Issel from Senior Entrepreneur Works, you know, we've done things together to point that out. Like with the silver tsunami, as they call it, one of the data points that I heard was that Eighty percent of all boomers want to retire within the next five years, and only 20 percent have an exit strategy. This is particularly challenging in rural communities because they have an advanced aging population relative to urban. So that wealth transition, what happens? Oftentimes, either the business just goes out of business totally because they can't, you know, get rid of it and or get somebody to take it over. Or in the case of rural, that money, that value is extracted from the rural community, which further exacerbates their development problems. So these are why these things are important. We're not just Pollyannish about this and saying, oh, entrepreneurship is this fun thing. You know, it's great. We need people to start businesses and make money and make these next products that we can enjoy. It's rooted in the values of the United States. It empowers communities to be able to have control of their own environment And over the long run, it builds a more stable and productive and competitive global economy.
0: Well, and I think one of the things to your point is if you happen to be a person who likes to fish, you're going to be a lot more successful if you're fishing a lake that has a lot of fish. And, you know, there's been this discussion that entrepreneurship is declining in the United States. But I've always made the point that we have a lot of raw talent. We're not providing equalized ecosystem opportunity to optimize the talent we have. And I think that's what many of the points you're making speaks to, that if we would really create the right kind of ecosystems and embrace the talent we do have, realizing that kind of classic 40-year-old white male demographic is stable and declining. There's a lot of juice out there, but we've got to put our systems, we've got to realign them to the talent that is also out
1: there. Absolutely. Like one of the best entrepreneurs that I know that we both know is from Auburn, Nebraska, Brent Comstock. I mean, you know, he is an exception to the rule because he started at 12. And he just kept building and he had some support from his family and locally. But how many Brett Comstocks are we losing because we don't have a system that values them and feeds into their desire for entrepreneurship productivity? I think about that all the time. Like I had a story that I used to tell a lot and people just loved it. I'm going to have to bring it back out about the young girls that were selling, you know, stuff on my corner, three young black girls that were down the corner i think the oldest was at the time maybe nine to ten and then she had her little sisters and cousins and they were selling stuff on my corner and i walk out of here this yelling and they're selling on the corner you know like all this kinds of stuff you know lemonade they're making all kinds of monies they got free books from the library and we're selling free books in the library they got like toys they're trying to sell me an easy bake oven all of these things on the corner And I remember the first time I told that story was actually in Topeka, Kansas, at the Anti-Poverty Conference. And somebody in the audience asked, well, what do you think is going to happen to these young ladies? And I said, I don't know. I said, because if it holds true to form, the ringleader, the oldest girl, is going to go to school. They're going to beat the entrepreneurship out of her by telling her what you want to be when you grow up, what's the job, what's the career pathway, all of these things. There's no courses for entrepreneurs in high school or in school in general and then she probably doesn't have a lot of pre-existing role models around her that could plug into her. And do I wonder how many kids are like Brent that we missed from Auburn, Nebraska? How many kids are like this little girl that we've missed? How much entrepreneurship talent is embedded in corporate structures, structures where they're not getting the greatest return on investment, but because that was the pathway they steered? And this is diverse, non-diverse entrepreneurs across the board. The problem is it's just worse for women and people of color.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Dell, we're going to have to wrap up, but I do want you to share with us. I know you've got some new projects that you're working on. Can you give us a preview of some of the new stuff that's going to be coming out from you and the Fed around entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, well, the most recent guide that we wrote was with myself and my colleague from the Atlanta Fed, Janelle Williams, called the Small Business Owners of Color Recovery Guide which is a guide that we wrote from extensive, you know, research and, you know, outreach during the pandemic to really help accelerate the recovery for small business owners of color. Because for those that have been looking at the data, they've been hit significantly harder in this particular recession. Then what we're really from that is we're starting this recovery community process, which is I call it a mini ecosystem seeding model using strategic doing as the background and we're starting in-region in our two regions first, and then we'll probably expand it later. But communities that have, you know, four unique organizations that want to work together in a collaborative fashion, I will teach them, take them through the strategic doing process to identify their quote-unquote biggies or their initial project, work with them from afar on, helping that with the hopes that we can start seeding around the nation, kind of these new collaborative, you know, actions to kind of build the ecosystem through TART, first program, but then hopefully expanding it out. And then later this year, the plan is still to start on my Hispanic entrepreneurship in America research report that hopefully we can have out next year to try to get at some of the things that I talked about, which is what happens if we don't improve Hispanic entrepreneurship in America? What are the challenges that they're facing? Where are the opportunities? How does it break? Because they're so heterogeneous, because that population is so heterogeneous, you may have a completely different entrepreneurial environment in, let's say, Florida with Cubans than let's say you do in the midwest with you know traditional immigrants from mexico first and second generation so figuring out where those populations are where's the strengths and the challenges via region and then how do we as the united states really come together to kind of create better ecosystems of support for them regardless of where they're at and then of course our group is working on our conference for next year can't leave that out there growing entrepreneurial communities conference number three
0: yeah yeah and more information will be coming out on that. Yeah and I think one of the important things that hopefully we can talk about more is realizing that if we think about you know certain groups of of entrepreneurs latino high startup rates, but we don't have the breakout rates. And so, why is the ecosystem? Because you know the talent is there. Why isn't some of that scaling to creating larger ventures that, of course, create jobs and tax base and other things that we need from our communities? Dell, we could talk about a lot of stuff, but we got to wrap. So, sir, thank you for joining me today. I so appreciate it. And we will be providing when we drop this episode information on not only your older papers, but your new one and so that people can follow up and take a look at your work.
1: Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Don.
0: All right. Well, as we wrap up this episode of Pathways to Rural Prosperity, remember, you can access a lot of free resources on rural entrepreneurial ecosystem building at our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. It's your best place to go. That's where you can join our E2 National Practitioners Network and access all of our E2 university resources that can take you from readiness to actually building that starter strategy to move your ecosystem building forward. We, of course, have our monthly E2 newsletter. It's easy to subscribe to and easy to unsubscribe should you find it not valuable, but that's where you're going to get cutting-edge information on new resources that we're generating, but also that we're finding in the field. And then, of course, you can sign up through your favorite platform to our Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. A couple of resources that might relate to our topic today with Dell. One is we have a paper called, Is Your Community a Jedi Hometown? And JEDI stands for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we put a rural spin on that, even for communities that may not view themselves as diverse. There's more diversity there than you think. And the second is we'll be dropping a podcast and a paper focusing on the impact of marginalized residents and the role of entrepreneurship to re-engage them in our community building and into entrepreneurship. So with that, thank you, Dell, And this concludes this episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast.